You're listening to the Mountain Park Church Podcast. My name is Andrew, and we're about to head into week three, part three of our study through the book of James. Um, This was a message that I preached last uh, few days ago on Sunday. And as usual, I've been reflecting on it. I've been sort of processing it with Jesus and with others. And there are a few things that I wanna speak to at the end of this message that I wanna clarify as usual. I say things in a way that maybe I didn't intend or I make statements that, you know, later on I think, man, that was not the right way to say that or it wasn't the right tone (laughs) that you said it with. So there are a few of those that I wanna just clarify. And even before, I send you off to this. You know, our the the heart of this study through James is to understand um, what James was trying to lead and encourage and pastor his friends through, who were uh, part of the diaspora. They were uh, scattered under persecution. They were Messianic uh, Christians, Messianic Jews, trying to follow Jesus under the Roman government and under um, a Hellenistic culture that is not unlike ours today. Our culture, I'm speaking from Canada in the West, our Western culture is dominated by the same values and principles of Hellenism that James James was encountering, that the New Testament writers were encountering. And so we're We're mining this book for the heart and the principles that James was trying to communicate to his friends uh, about how to follow Jesus in these kinds of situations and contexts. And one of the things that I just wanted to just um, share with you, just in a a moment of vulnerability, I was speaking with a friend um, last week and um, he was asking me some questions about something I had said in a previous message. And um, I just said, look, uh, often I come across as um, being very sure of myself. I I can get animated and even sometimes aggressive when I'm preaching and I I can make statements that should be more questions (laughs) or I can appear um, as though I'm, I'm, I'm very confident with what I say I'm, I believe, or my convictions are. And, um, but the truth is that I, I deeply wrestle with these things. I deeply wrestle with how to follow Jesus in our current cultural climate. I deeply wrestle with what it means to follow Jesus in relationship to my community, what it means to follow Jesus today now and be a part of a local church in relationship to government. And I deeply wrestle with these things. And one of the things the Holy Spirit has been putting his finger on in my life is actually actually to communicate in a way that's consistent with the the wrestling that I have going on internally. And that communication would would be more gentle, 
would be more patient, would be more uh, reflective and less sort of angry preacher yelling at the world and at the church and, you know, uh, reprimanding and rebuking them. There's a time for those things. But in general, um, in my own life, I want to be uh, somebody who is walking with peace and gentleness, the fruit of the Spirit. I want that to come out in my preaching, and it doesn't always. And this was one of those weeks where I just felt like, man, I... I wasn't, um, I wasn't speaking from a, I wasn't communicating with a heart of compassion or gentleness in some moments. And I wish I would have done better with that. And so I just wanted to acknowledge that uh, and, and ask for your grace and patience with me in the middle of that. So with all of my imperfections and all of the things that I would like to do better, I wanna now pass you on to this third part in our study through the book of James. And I'll see you at the end for a few additional comments. If you have your scripture journal, this would be a great time to get it out. Um, we're reading from the New Living Translation, and this is James 1, 22 to 27. But don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says, otherwise you are only fooling yourselves. Or if you listen to the word and don't obey, it is like glancing at your face in a mirror. If you see yourself, walk away and forget what you look like. Hang on. You see yourself, walk away and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free. And if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. If you claim to be religious but don't control your tongue, you are fooling yourself and your religion is worthless. Pure and genuine religion in the sight of God the Father means caring for orphans and widows in their distress and refusing to let the world corrupt you. Amazing, you can have a seat. So as we're processing through um, the book of James, like we've mentioned, this is just a survey, an overview. There's a lot that we're trying to just kind of um, bring to your attention each week in this. And one of the things, again, that we're, we've got to remind ourselves all the time when it comes to Scripture, interpreting Scripture, is that context matters. The original historical context is significant and important. James is writing this book from a, the heart of a pastor. He's writing to his friends, his community, his family. He's writing to um, Messianic Jews in the first century, probably in the mid-40s of the first century. So he's writing to his own community and his own people, specifically those who have been dispersed because of persecution. Those who have had to leave home, they've had to leave family, they've had to leave friends, they've had to leave customs, food, culture, everything that's safe, everything that would uh, sort of protect them and keep them safe in life, they've had to flee from. And James is writing to these people and he's writing to encourage them with how to follow Jesus in the midst of a society and in a culture that is opposed to the way of Jesus. 
What he's trying to do is encourage them, remind them of what it means to walk with Jesus when everything around you is pressuring you to go a different way. When everything around you is pressuring you to respond and react in the sort of the the worst ways of you. The broken parts of you, the dysfunctional parts of you, the angry parts of you, the the impatient parts of you, et cetera, et cetera. He's saying, look, when unexpected trials come, I'm gonna show you, I, I wanna encourage you with how to process those, how to walk and follow Jesus. The key for us, and James keeps coming back to this theme of trials through the whole book. And the key thing that we need to remember in there is James is focused on the unexpected things of life. As we work into this passage today, he's talking about speech and he's talking about a whole bunch of other things. He's not talking about how you respond and react after you've had time to cool down and think about it. He's not talking about how you respond and react after you've already kind of edited your speech and your tongue. He's not talking about that part of you. He's talking about the part of you that impulsively reacts when unexpected things pop up in life. Unexpected trial, unexpected confrontation and conflict. When your kid does something that is so stupid and you know it's so dumb and you're caught in this moment where you're like, I don't know, I don't even know how to react right now. I don't even know what to say. I don't know what to do. We've had a a bunch of those in our family with two boys. And I would say largely Rochelle is the one who's left dumbfounded with like, how do boys even, where does this thinking come from? How do, how do these thoughts even enter their mind to do the things that they do? I'm, I'm just kind of like, well, yeah, I can identify with that. I don't know why you want to take that power tool and make something and you're seven years old and I don't know why you gravitate toward that, right? But James is talking about what happens in our life when unexpected confrontation comes, not after you've had a chance to edit it. What is it that comes out first? That's what James has his finger on for us here and for his community. Again, like we've been saying, when we read scripture, scripture cannot mean something different for us than it originally meant for the first audience. There may be different application for us, obviously. We're not living in first century Rome or Palestine. The Middle East, we're not there. So there's application for us. But James was speaking to real people about real stuff. And these real people had had everything stripped away from them that that would give them the kind of margin in their life to walk in peace. You know, like when everything's going well, when you feel like, Man, I, I've, got, I've got great boundaries around me. I'm protected and I'm safe. When we feel safe, we can respond out of the best of who we are. We're patient, we're gentle. When we, we're not threatened, we're not insecure, but remove our safety and insecurity starts popping up. And when insecurity starts manifesting itself, a whole bunch of ugly things start to happen in our life. And so James is not talking to people who feel like 
They're in the blessed life. He's talking about people who are like, man, I didn't expect this. My life is not going the way I thought it would. I, following Jesus is not resulting in the things the televangelist told me it would, right? I sent my 20 bucks in, but I don't feel blessed. Maybe I even got a hanky from him in the mail, but still, I'm not, I'm not, I don't feel blessed. James is talking about what happens when real life kicks in. So he says, don't just listen to God's word. So what's the God's word that James is talking about? Well, the word that James is talking about, so James obviously is specifically not referencing our whole canon of scripture that didn't exist when James wrote this. So James is talking about a couple of things. He's talking about the Torah. Specifically, the law of God as they would have received it through Moses, the first five books of the Bible, the law that they would have received through Moses, those were their scriptures, those were their word of God. Now, of course, today we can say, hey, we'll include all of this. This is part of the word of God. But James is talking about the law. He's talking about scripture. And he uses a few terms to talk about it in his book. In James 2.8, he says this, indeed, it's good when you obey the royal law as found in scripture. The royal law, we'll talk about that. Some people call that the Jesus creed in New Testament terms. So James calls scripture the royal law. He also calls it in James 2.10, the whole law. For the person who keeps all of the laws, uh, the person who keeps all the laws except one is as guilty as a person who has broken all of God's laws. And also in 2.12, he calls it the law that gives freedom. Whatever you say or whatever you do, remember that you will be judged by the law that sets you free. James is talking about scripture. He's talking about what came through Moses to his community, the Israelites. The thing, again, we've, so we've got a, in our modern, uh, specifically Protestant, if you grew up in a, in a Reformed tradition or a heavily Baptistic tradition, this starts to get into potentially uncomfortable territory because we're talking about Old Testament law here. We're not talking about the New Testament specifically. That's included, of course. But some of us have been taught to unhinge the Old from the New Testament. That the old is now subservient to the new, that's not what James would believe. He would believe that the Old Testament holds the same authority as the New Testament. And so James is talking about the law. And the thing is, this gets us into uncomfortable territory, but Jesus himself was not opposed to the law. Listen to this. Jesus is saying this, Matthew 5, 17. Don't misunderstand why I've come. I did not come to abolish the law. He didn't come to dismantle it and tell anyone that the law was useless or that they didn't need it anymore. I came to accomplish its purpose, Jesus says. I tell you the truth until heaven and earth disappear. Not even the smallest detail of God's law will disappear until its purpose is achieved. So if you ignore, these are the words of Jesus. 
If you ignore the least commandment and teach others to do the same, you'll be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But anyone who obeys God's laws and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. This is Jesus speaking about the Torah, speaking about the Old Testament. First five books of the Bible specifically. So James is simply echoing what he would have heard from his brother Jesus' mouth. So then what is Jesus' perspective? What's James's perspective then of the value of the law? What is most important then for us to consider? Jesus clarifies the intent and the whole point of the law in Mark 12, 28 to 31. One of the teachers of religious law was standing there listening to a debate. He realized that Jesus had answered well, so he asked of all the commandments, which is the most important. So here's a, this is a classic thing. We all kind of do this. Some of us love debating. We debate doctrine, we debate theology, we love debating. We love holding scripture at arm's length, thinking that we can objectively evaluate it, thinking that we can intellectually master it, thinking that we can understand it intellectually or theoretically, and have mastery over it. And so this religious leader, he's intending to trap Jesus. He's intending to say, look, I'm gonna stand at arm's length. I'm gonna evaluate the law. I'm gonna evaluate how well you follow it. I'm I'm gonna kind of impose my understanding of it on you, but I'm not gonna enter into it myself. I'm not gonna live this. I'm just gonna kind of theoretically lay out my points to you. I'm going to stand on my soapbox and tell you what is true and what's right and what God's word says. And Jesus doesn't fall for this trap. He says the most important commandment is this, listen, O Israel, the Lord our God is the one and only Lord. And you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and all your strength. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. You have to get into it. You have to live this in order to follow it. You can't just stand back at arm's length and have an objective, intellectual, systematic theology and doctrine about it. There's goodness in systematic theology, but there's a great danger in systematic theology. Thinking that we can systematize God and bring all of scripture into our neatly organized thoughts and patterns? No, we can't. And this is what the Pharisees were trying to do to Jesus. He said, you have to actually live this if you want to claim that you understand it and that you listen to to it. So Jesus doesn't throw out the law What Jesus did was redefine the model for how we live faithful to God with the law, how scripture informs how we live. And Jesus says in here, he combines two essential things. It's not just what you believe, it's how you live it in relation to others. So Jesus here is, he would actually be pushing against our hyper-individualized Western view of Christianity, that I can have a private faith of my own. 
No one should bother me. No one can tell me. I'm just going to practice my faith privately in my heart. Jesus would say that is not a category scripturally for how to live out your faith. It is done relationally, and it's done in the context of others. So for James, this word that he's talking about, God's word, is the perfect law that's summed up in what Jesus has just said. That comes from Leviticus 19.18. Love the Lord your God with all your heart. I like Dallas Willard's definition of love. And it's not what the Hallmark Channel says it is. <laughs> it's not what Hollywood says. It's not what our culture says it is. To love is to will the good of another. So to love God is to will in our life, to will what God defines as good for us. It's to live out what God defines as good for us. To love him is to embody, God, what is your heart for me in life? What is it that you say is good for me? What is it that you define as good for my life? To love you is to walk in alignment with that. But we live in a culture that says love is defined by what I get and what I receive and what I want and what I desire. Love is centered on me. And Jesus would say, no, love is centered on another. So for James, this gospel, this God's word that he's talking about is centered on the Old Testament, on the first five books of Scripture. Jesus isn't telling them to throw it out. He's urging them to live it in relationship to God and others the way he did. So what James is doing is he's echoing the words of his brother Jesus, the intent of his brother, and he's saying you need to live the Torah as Jesus did. It needs to show up in your relationships and not just be this private, personal thing that you carry in your heart. You need to live it relationally. This is a quote that I've been wrestling with for a couple of years, actually. I want to read it to you. It's from Robert Mulholland Jr. He is no longer alive. He was a New Testament scholar, actually, ironically, at Asbury University, where that renewal is happening right now. He was a New Testament scholar there for many, many years. This is what he says about this passage that Jesus has quoted. Our increasingly self-referenced culture our increasingly self-referenced culture easily succumbs to the notion that our spirituality is a private matter between us and God and that others play a very secondary role, if any at all. Jesus sets us straight in his response to the greatest commandment. When we hear the word second, we immediately relegate what follows to an inferior place in relation to what's first. So we hear that in our culture, we hear second, and we go, less important. Therefore, loving God is primary. And if there is time or energy or you have any interest left after that, then others might come into the picture. The way in which Jesus responses, responds should be translated, however, like this. This is how Robert 
paraphrases this. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. Another way to say the same thing is you should love your neighbor as yourself. Not secondary. The way you walk in relationship to others identifies how well you love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. It's not secondary. It's a manifestation of whether that's actually true. What you say you believe about God, what you say you love about him, how your devotion to him is expressed in how you relate to others. And James is putting his finger on how we relate to others when the unexpected stuff starts to hit the fan in life. That that's a revealer of how well we love God. Robert goes on to say, if you think I'm playing fast and loose with this translation, you haven't read 1 John lately. The whole thrust of that letter is that one's relationship with God is inseparably rooted in one's relationship with others. The earliest church seemed to understand what Jesus meant. The context of our relationship with God is our relationship with others. So for James, God's word was the Torah, but it wasn't just kind of a systematic, dogmatic, um, educational, forensic reading of it. God's word was the Torah, but it was the Torah applied relationally in life. And this is how Jesus modeled um, a, a an approachability, a, a posture towards Scripture where Jesus studied it, he memorized it, he meditated on it, he let it shape and form his life, and then he brought it into relationship. He began to live what he had taken into his life. And today, for us to be people who follow God's word, it doesn't mean that we only intellectually understand it. That's part of it. But to be people of God's word means that we meditate on it, we study it, we memorize it, we bring it to bear in our lives, and then we walk it out relationally with other people. That's what it means. For Jesus, he did this in one significant way, and we've talked about this. He brought his life under scripture. And then every day he would say, Father, what is your desire for my life today? John 5, I only say what I hear the Father speaking. Jesus combined the word, the law that he would have as recorded by Moses into a prayer life that said, God, would you breathe on this? Would you lead me? How do you want me to live this today? How do you want me to apply this in my life? What do you want to do with this in me today? And so scripture doesn't become some object that we gain mastery over. It becomes a, a gateway into relationship where we memorize it, we read it, we study it. And then more importantly, we say, Father, what do you want to do with it in my life today? We sit with it and we listen to the Holy Spirit who is the teacher of all things. It's the Holy Spirit who wrote this, who inspired this. It comes from his lips and from his heart. And our goal is not to master it. It's to sit with it and listen to his voice. Would you speak to me about this? Would you shape my life? Would you co correct me and convict me, confront me? 
Would you show me how to relationally walk this out today? This is how we live under God's word, as we bring it into our life, not as an object to master, but as a, as a mediator of relationship. When was the last time you read a passage and then just stopped and became quiet and said, Holy Spirit, would you speak to me about this? What is it you want to bring to my attention here? What is it you want to confront in me and convict in me? What is it you want to teach me through this? When's the last time you stopped and then actually waited? That's what scripture means in, in the Psalms when it talks about meditating and chewing on the word. I meditate on your law day and night. It's David sitting with scripture and saying, I'm inviting you, Spirit of God, to come and breathe life into this and make it real for me. Would you lead me by it? And that was the story of Jesus' life. I only speak what I hear the Father speaking. I only do what I see him doing. That's how Jesus related to scripture. So James is saying, the problem is not with the law, it's with how you walk it out. You're twisting it and distorting it. And James goes on to say, and then the problem is that you're only listening to it at arm's length. You're hearing it, but you're not living it. And don't think that you can be a follower of Jesus by simply hearing and not living. And again, James kind of steps right into some awkward territory for us. I don't know how to answer all of these big soteriological questions that I even have. How do we, how do we wrestle with all of these things? I think... In my own life, I could superimpose on that. Andrew, you're misleading yourself if you think because you prayed a prayer one time at camp that everything's golden and good. You're misleading yourself if you think that you're academically understanding Scripture and you know a, a, a ton of verses and have even memorized large portions of it. But if you're not walking it and living it, don't be misled. Our intentions are not the thing that James has on trial here. It's our activity and our action. We intend for many good things, I do, that I don't actually follow through with. So we say in one breath, Jesus, I love you. And then in our lifestyle, in our choices, in our activity, in our relationships with others, often we don't see that demonstrated at all. And James is poking us here, probing us. And I, I, want, I want you to sit in the tension and the uncomfortability of this, the weight of this. Is the call on Scripture that you intellectually agree with Jesus, that he's the way, the truth, and the life, or that you live it? The word for faith in the New Testament, pistis, most often means allegiance to, a following after, not an intellectual assent of. It's not enough just to believe Jesus is Lord. His requirement on our life is that we follow him. And Jesus is saying the law is not the thing that's the problem here. It's that you're not following it with the heart of God. 
So for James, there were some in his community that were deceived into thinking they could separate Jesus' first statement about loving God from the second one. And James corrects this by saying you must hear and do. You must move beyond private, individualized faith that you practice in whatever way you do in your heart to a faith that actually lives relationally with others. So what does James mean by then do what it says? Who is the doer that he's talking about? That word in the Greek actually means to be a composer of, a writer, a poet or a creator, a painter. It has that kind of connotation. And what James is saying is our lives are called to write the score, the music, to, to, to be the canvas on which God is writing his redemptive story on the earth, that our lives are to be a symphony of God's heart on the earth, and that together as the whole church, together we're the orchestra that God is playing the music of redemption and creation for in the life of our world. We're called to actually live the heart of God. James was actually just echoing the teaching of his brother, Jesus. For Jesus even, faith required doing. Matthew 7, you can enter God's kingdom only through the narrow gate. The highway to hell is broad and its gate is wide for the many who choose that way. But the gateway to life is very narrow and the road is difficult and only a few ever find it. Beware of false prophets who come disguised as harmless sheep but are really vicious wolves. You can identify them by their fruit, by the substance of their life, by their character, by the way they speak, by the way they relate to others. Or Jesus said, you can identify them by their fruit, that is, by the way they act. Can you pick grapes from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? A good tree produces good fruit, and a bad tree produces bad fruit. A good tree can't produce bad fruit, and a bad tree can't produce good fruit. So every tree that does not produce good fruit is chopped down and thrown into the fire. Jesus is not talking about your intellectual agreement with him theologically. He's talking about how you live. We could keep on reading about what he says about true disciples and building on a solid foundation. The whole context of the narrow gate, the narrow road is not theological agreement it is lived reality. The narrow gate is not whether you agree with Jesus that he's Lord, it's whether you live like you agree. That's the context for Jesus. It's doing, not just intellectually believing. And we've kind of gotten that all, we've put all of the emphasis on, on whether you agree with Jesus that he's Lord, which obviously would be a first step, but that's not the narrow road for Jesus, the narrow road are the very few who live what they say they believe. And we have a significant problem with that in our culture, in our Christian church in the West. We've divorced the two. 
And we've said, you can believe, but not live. And Jesus says, no, 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 no. That narrow gate are those who actually put into practice, embody in their life what they say they believe. This passage for me fills me with fear and trembling. I'm not saying this in, a, in an air of condemnation over you, like somehow I've mastered all of these things. And I, I, I'm saying this as somebody who, when I read this, I'm filled with the fear of God. Because I want to be one who lives the words of Jesus and doesn't just say that I believe them who doesn't just have a faith, whatever that means to you, but who actually relationally embodies the heartbeat of the kingdom with other people. And that's what James is saying, is the rubber hits the road in your relationships, in your marriage, with your kids, with your coworkers, with your you know, hockey parents and baseball and community stuff. The rubber hits the road as you encounter people in unexpected situations, that's where the rubber hits the road. And so Jesus is teaching in his own teaching that that narrow gate is living for him, not just believing in him. Paul says this in Romans. We would never think of this from Paul, but in Romans, sort of the Magna Carta of the Reformation and those streams of the body, he says, merely listening to the law doesn't make us right with God. It's obeying the law that makes us right with God. And so James is not undermining Scripture. He's not undermining the law. Jesus doesn't undermine it. They say the whole point of that is that you live now the heart of God in your life. James goes on to talk about I uses this parable of looking into a mirror. And that word in the Greek for looking into is not just sort of a quick glance. It's actually um, the picture there is standing over and intently studying something. It's intently kind of observing and processing what you're seeing. It's looking at your own life intently and observing the contents of your life. And James is saying that we can do this in kind of two ways. And there's two sort of ways that scholars try and understand this. The first is that this mirror actually uses Genesis language of that when you look at yourself, you see the image of God, the icon of God. It's going back to Genesis 1. And the idea that you were made for a purpose, that God has designed you for a purpose. He has a vision for your life. He has a way for you to live. He has something that he's built you for and called you to. And what James might be saying, if that's the view that you take, which is a possibility, what James might be saying is that you, you actually, you sit there and you stare at and reflect on the fact that you've been made for a purpose, that you've been made to follow God, to walk with him, that you've been made to carry his kingdom onto the earth, and then you walk away and just totally disregard him. You just, you just abandon it and go, you know what? I'm not gonna live for God's image of my life. I'm just gonna create my own. I'm going to be the captain of my own ship. I'm going to be the God of my own life. And I'm going to satisfy myself with, with whatever I want. 
That could be a way to read what James is talking about here. The other option could be a morality kind of schema where when we look at this mirror, when we're looking intently into it, we're seeing areas of our life where there's brokenness and sin and dysfunction, areas where we are falling short of the calling of God in our life, where we see those things, where we experience conviction in our heart. You know, that's probably happened to you this week. It's happened to me this week where I have experienced the conviction of the Spirit in my heart, and James is saying, what do you do with that? And a foolish person, as James is describing it here, a foolish person is one who sees that and then walks away and pays no regard to the conviction of the Spirit in your life over the things that grieve the heart of God. A foolish person is one who walks away and goes, well, I'm just saved by grace anyway. So it doesn't really matter at the end of the day. God doesn't really call me to to live anything out. I'm saved by grace, so he'll forgive me. It's interesting, and we all do this in different areas, it's interesting how many excuses we make for our own sin by just saying, well, God will forgive me. And he does, and he's faithful to us over and over again. But does that actually lead us to living out and walking out the purposes and the plans of God for our life? Or is that like an existence at the lowest common denominator? Scott McKnight says it this way, one who sees but does nothing about it is like one who sees his or her moral condition in a mirror and walks away without changing. It's staring you right in the face and you just go, "Mm, no. And when we go, "Mm, no, our heart begins to harden. We begin to lose that sense of the brokenness over our own life and our own sin when we continually just kind of put the hand up and go, I'm not going there, God. Our heart gets hard and we lose the sensitivity that we need to the Holy Spirit in our life. We become numb and robotic. And James is saying that's not the life that God has called us for. So the question that we can even ask as we look at this mirror analogy is by what are you measuring your life? By what are you measuring, what are you looking at in the mirror? Are you defining your life by yourself? Or, as James puts it, are you defining your life by God's perfect law, by God's standard for your life? What is the standard by which you live? Is it your own self-defined standard? Or is it God's? When you look in the mirror, as James is saying, do you just see what you want to see? Do you just accept what only you want to accept? Are you willing to have your life evaluated by Scripture, life evaluated by the Holy Spirit's presence? Are you willing to have the Holy Spirit bring correction and conviction into your life in order for you to follow Jesus more faithfully? So this perfect law for James that we've been talking about is a Christian hermeneutic of the Torah, It's the way Jesus himself modeled life in the kingdom on earth. 
Jesus did not come to say the Torah is useless. He came to say, I will embody it and live it perfectly. I will carry the nature and the heart of my Father to every conversation, to every human interaction, to every area of brokenness, to every area of hurt, to every area of conflict and need. And what I will carry the heart of the Father into all of those places. That is what it means to follow God. Paul says in Galatians, you've been called to live in freedom. Brothers and sisters, don't use your freedom to satisfy your sinful nature. Instead, use it to serve one another in love. The whole law, Paul says, can be summed up in this one command, love your neighbor as yourself. But if you're always biting and devouring one another, watch out. Beware of destroying one another. Jesus, in John 13, I'm giving you a new commandment, love each other. Just as I have loved you, you should love each other. Your love for one another, listen, these are Jesus's words. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. The radical upside down kingdom that Jesus came and brought, the expression of the law and all of the goodness and fullness of God was found in this one phrase, enemy love. The Sermon on the Mount is Jesus' living example of how to walk in the kingdom, how to relate to others relationally. I want to read you this, part of this, just as an example, I think, of what James is aiming at here. Jesus said, if you love only those who love you and agree with you politically, and agree with you on sociological issues of gender and sexuality, if you love those who agree with you on all of these finer points, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners love those who love them. This is the Torah lived. And if you do good to only those who do good to you, why should you get any credit? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money only to those who can repay you, why should you get credit? Even sinners who lend to other sinners for a full return do that. Love your enemies. Do good to them. Lend to them without expecting to be repaid. Then your reward from heaven will be very great and you will be truly acting as children of the Most High for he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. You must be compassionate just as your father is compassionate. The lived out kingdom of God is not just lived out where it's easy. It's not lived out in your echo chamber online or on social media. It's not lived out as you agree with those who agree with you. And this is what James is saying to those in his community that have been dispersed because of persecution. They're no longer in that safety net of being in a, a community of people that's an echo chamber for what they already believe and what their convictions are. They're now faced with people who violently oppose them, who ideologically hate them. And God is saying, and James is saying, the measure of your love is not measured by how you love when it's easy. It's how you love when everything 
in you wants to rebel against it, when everything in you wants to set the person straight, when everything in you wants to tear a strip off them and correct them and reprove them, that's the measure of how well you love. Not when it's easy, but precisely when it's hard, when you're agitated and annoyed. So to look into this law, to look into this mirror as James is describing, is to examine, God, what is, what is it you're calling me to embody and to live? How do I become more like you? How do I take on that image that you've created me with? How do I live out your purposes and your calling in my life in a way that brings freedom and hope and love? How do I bring the kingdom into places of brokenness and hurt, oppression? How do I bring your kingdom in when I'm offended? And when the person or group opposite me is my enemy in my own mind? How do I do that? So James defines doing with three things. I want to just kind of end with this. Here's what he defines as doing the word. This is the immediate context of James. Number one, you do the word when you control your tongue. And we're going to, not because I want to, but because James, he hits this over and over in this book. We're going to keep coming back to this. The way you talk cannot be separated from what's going on in your heart or mine. And I have grieved the heart of God more times than I can possibly count with my tongue. James is saying, you live and you do by controlling your tongue. Number two, you live and you do by expressing and living compassion for the marginalized. And number three, you live and do by avoiding worldliness, by seeking to live in purity. These are the three things that James has at the front of mind, how you talk, how you express compassion to the marginalized and what you allow into your life, what you allow to permeate your life. This is what Jesus said about the tongue. Matthew 15, the words you speak come from the heart. That's what defiles you. From the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, all sexual immorality, theft, lying, and slander. These are what defile you. The stuff from outside are not what defile you. So here's the, the part that's really hard for us to wrestle with. What is Jesus saying? It's how you speak in the heat of the moment when you haven't had a chance to edit your thoughts that reveals what's actually going on in your heart. And for me, that's a terrifying thought. The substance of my heart is not what comes out when I carefully craft it. It's what comes out in the heat of the moment as I'm engaging with Rochelle or with my kids or any one of you. That's what reveals what's actually happening at a heart level. And that's what James is saying. We need to get to this level to get to this place where we begin to so deeply live out the heart of God that it comes out spontaneously toward those that we're in conflict with. In this context, James is talking about unexpected trials and confrontation. So, in your marriage, 
in your parenting, and ding, 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 on social media. What are you saying? How are you talking with, how you talk, according to scripture, is more important than what you say. It's more important than the point you're trying to make is how you make it. I just jotted a few things down here. I think James is probably speaking to, because he alludes to these in other places of scripture. I know I'm almost done, trust me. (laughs) It's the way I feel in my heart even. All right, so what is James hinting at? Because he kind of touches on this. Habitual criticism and calling out do not come from the heart of God. Calling people out does not come from the heart of God. Habitual criticism of others is not an evident, there's there's no fruit of the spirit in that. They reveal a heart that's deformed from the way of Jesus. Words that mock or are sarcastic come from a heart that's hardened or proud. This is, I've lived most of my life in the realm of sarcasm. (laughs) Just ask Rochelle, it drives her insane. But God has been convicting me. Words that I speak that mock or are sarcastic for the purpose of lowering someone else beneath me are not consistent with the heart of God. What do you say online? When you have the benefit of arm's length from people, how do you engage with them? How do you engage with the larger cultural conversation? What do you say about our political leaders? Do you mock them and ridicule them online? I'm just asking the question. I know, I've, I, I know. I, that's part of the reason I'm not on social media anymore is because it's such a, a brutal temptation to enter into this kind of discourse that is not filled with the fruit of the Spirit or the kingdom of God, but that debases me to act in a way that is deformed from the culture of the kingdom, where I speak in a way that Jesus himself would never speak to another human being made in his image, regardless of how different ideologically they are from me, or regardless of how much I believe they're kind of living in sin or away from God. So how do you talk? For James, that's part of doing the kingdom. I want to just leave you a note. Compassion to the marginalized. Just a a historical note. Orphans, in James' time, he talks about caring for widows and orphans in this passage. An orphan in first century Roman culture was not a child who had no parents. An orphan was a child of a single parent. How do we treat and care for those who are by no fault of their own living a disadvantaged and marginalized life? Do we actually care for them? We could talk a lot about what we've been doing as a church behind. There's so much you don't know, and I think that's actually better. I don't want to get up here. I thought about it and like go point by point for everything our church is doing. We pay rent for people. We buy vehicles for people. We pay for groceries. We pay for health. We we do whatever we can 
to step into that place of brokenness and be the body. But for James, doing means compassion toward the marginalized. Single mothers. It's a huge area of heart concern for us as a church. Single fathers. James isn't limiting this to orphans and widows. He has a a larger view here, I think, but that's where we need to start. And lastly, walking away from worldliness. In Scripture, the world is always something that is alive and at war with the purposes of God on the earth. Worldliness are those things, you can go back to Ephesians 2. We talk about that so much, Ephesians 2. Worldliness are those things that are at war with the purposes of God and his kingdom. For James, in his book, worldliness is characterized by power, indulgence, and selfishness. In seeing your desires as preeminent in your life, as the center of your life, when you see yourself as the locus of power, as the center of desire in your own life, you're, according to James, entering into worldliness. James is not encouraging people to withdraw from society. We've talked about the Essenes and that response, and there's something beautiful about that. But Jesus did not live as a secluded hermit. He walked in the middle of culture and brought the kingdom to bear on the culture. So there's a tension here. So lastly, I want to just invite you to stand. And this is a part that I, uh, I share with just, again, great conviction, not as a, not in the form of condemnation or even correction for you, but a collective need for us to step into a place of humility and brokenness into our lives. James is calling his community and us today to recognize that we aren't doing, we aren't doing faith in Jesus if we don't do it in a way that's consistent with the character of Jesus. We can be theologically right, but grieve the Spirit all the same because we don't carry our conviction with the character of the kingdom. What James is pointing out is we cannot separate character from conviction. You can't say something that's right in a wrong way and be right. According to scripture, according to Jesus, you're wrong. And this is something we all need to wrestle with in our own lives. None of us are living above the board totally in this. We all fall short of this. But Jesus' call to you is not just to be right and to know what's right, but to live in in a way that's consistent with the heart of God. So how can we do that? Well, Jesus is our model, and we've talked about this a ton. We do that by bringing our lives under Scripture, meditating on it, memorizing it, saturating ourselves, immersing ourselves in Scripture. We do it by cultivating rhythms of spiritual practice, 
You could call them holy habits or disciplines. And we do this by cultivating reliance on the Holy Spirit. And one of the practical ways I want to call you to as we end today uh, is something new. We're, we're doing this here. We've never really done this in an organized way. Wednesday this week is the start of Lent. It's Ash Wednesday. And this is the 40-day lead up to Easter. And here's what I want to invite you to. No condemnation like in any way. But I want to invite you, as a church, we're going to embody what we say we believe. I want to call you to fast during Lent. You don't have to totally fast from all food. You can fast from gummies. That was my starting point. And then God was like, well, maybe a little bit more than Sour Patch Kids. Let's try for something more. But you could start there. That's a good one. Um, I want, to, I want to call you, actually, not because I'm saying it, but to leave this place and have a conversation with the Holy Spirit. What is a way that I can demonstrate humility toward you and repentance in my life? Fasting is a way we demonstrate humility and repentance and brokenness. It's a way that we embody the heart of the kingdom in that way. So here's what we're going to try and what we will do as a church. Wednesday is the beginning of Lent. Wednesday is our night. We have freedom session here, and we're almost through that. This week's teaching is actually on repentance. So here's what I want to do. I want to invite you to come and join us for that teaching portion on Wednesday night at 7 o'clock here at the church. Ken, who we had here in the fall, does the teaching. He's going to be teaching on repentance. And then we're going to take a few moments of prayer and maybe even a, a, a song of worship. And we're going to dedicate ourselves to Jesus as we work toward Easter and the season where we experience the power of God in restoration and renewal and resurrection. We're going to posture ourselves in humility and in brokenness and repentance by fasting. And I want to call you up into it. You ask the Spirit. Let Him direct you. Don't, it's, this isn't my deal to convict you. Let Him direct you. But as a church, we want to begin to embody what we say we believe, and we want to carry the culture of the kingdom as we do it. And so I want to invite you as a way to demonstrate and way to do what James is talking about. Don't just be hearers of the word but doers, as a way to do, I want to just invite you into this season as we prepare for Easter together. So you're welcome to come on Wednesday. We'll all watch the teaching together. Then our small groups will break out like we normally do to discuss things. But I just, I just feel like God's saying it's time, it's time to begin living what you say you believe. Andrew, it's starting with me, not you. With me, it's time, Andrew, that you begin to live what you say you believe, that you follow me in the way of the kingdom, not your broken, angry, impatient, intolerant, insecure way, but in the way of love, in the way of compassion and mercy and gentleness. It's time. Let's pray. Jesus, we entrust all of this in our lives to you. And I just ask, Holy Spirit, Far more than my jumbled up mess of words, I just ask that you would speak life and renewal 
and hope, actually, as odd as that sounds, I just ask Holy Spirit that you would speak hope right now into the hearts and the soul of every person under the sound of my voice, that you would ignite in them a little flicker of fire to walk after you with renewed power and passion, to, uh, to follow you with their whole being. Father, we just submit even this idea to follow you in Lent together as a church. We submit it to you. Jesus, we're not looking to perform for you. We're not looking to earn anything from you. We're not looking to pat ourselves on the back with anything. We're just looking to walk in the way of the kingdom together as a whole family and community. And so we just submit it to you. Holy Spirit, I pray that you would call each one of us up into greater measures of your presence, a greater calling to steward your gifts and your calling, your purpose for each of our lives. I thank you that you have placed each one of us here at this time in this place for a specific purpose. And I ask, Father, that you would just stir up Stir up the words in the heart of God for each one of my friends here. Teach us in our marriages this week to embody your kingdom in gentleness and in compassion and patience. Teach us with our kids too. In our relationships and online social media, teach us to embody your kingdom to not just hear, but do in the way of Jesus. Amen. Okay, so like I said, I just want to make a few brief comments, specifically about um, the way I phrased something near the end of that message. And I made a comment um, essentially to the effect that, you know, it how you say something is more important than whether it's true or not. And uh, I, I had, somebody had uh, in our church that was listening that morning was having trouble with that. And I understand that. That actually is one of those ones I wish I could take back and rephrase that. It obviously is important that things are true. Um, what I would what I would say this time around with that would be that I think those need to have equal weight in our life. Not only that we say what's true, but that we say it in a way, we communicate in a way that carries the character of the kingdom that embodies uh, in, in the fruit of the spirit. So, just because something is true, it doesn't give us license to say that or communicate that in a way that totally undermines the character of God, that undermines the fruit of the Spirit, that undermines the way of Jesus. So I, I would just say we need to hold those in tension and we we need to resist the urge to uh, give ourselves a free pass on being angry and irritable and calling you know, people out, shouting them down, insulting them, 
um, being malicious with sarcasm and all kinds of name-calling, derogatory comments, those are not acceptable. They are categorically not acceptable, even if what you're uh, trying to get at is true. And so this is an area of our, uh, our modern American, Canadian, whatever, evangelical life that we have been way too dismissive of. And um, I want to challenge you with that. I wanna, I'm challenging myself with that, but I want to challenge you with that, that James that James is not just, um, he's not letting people off the hook with how they speak. So it's not whether or not it is true alone, it's whether or not it is true and you are speaking in a way that looks like and sounds like Jesus would. And we can't forget that. We cannot forget that on social media. We can't forget that in our private conversations. We can't forget that as we speak to our spouses and our children, our coworkers. How you communicate and how you um, present what's true is as important as whether or not it's true. That's how I would rephrase that. James is offering us some deeply challenging and confronting teaching, and we need to wrestle with that. We need to have the humility to go, all right, Jesus, uh, man, this is a strong conviction for me, but I'm asking you would shape this conviction, that you would shape it in um, a way that is consistent with the fruit of your spirit, with your character and with your nature, and uh, I want to encourage you with that. As we continue to wrestle these things down, let's do it with humility. Let's do it with patience and gentleness. Um, let's resist the uh, temptation of the enemy to give ourselves a free pass on how we conduct ourselves because we believe that being true and right is more important to God than how we express those true and right convictions. So have an amazing week. I can't wait to connect with you again. Uh, we'll see you later.